You're listening to the Performance Group Podcast, a place to listen, learn, and get to know the unseen heroes of our local community. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean Kirby, and on the Performance Group Podcast, we make it our mission to learn from those around us and shed light on our local community. If you're new to the show, we have spoken to business leaders, community, organizers, friends, and family. And before we jump in today, I hope to ask you for a favor. If you could please just take one second to hit subscribe and share our posts. It would mean a whole lot to me, our team here at the Performance Group, and our amazing guests on today's show. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Performance Group Podcast. My name is Sean Kirby, and on today's episode of the Performance Group Podcast, another series of the Blue Collar Blueprint with the one and only Mr. Jeff Bennington, correct? That is correct. So Jeff is here on behalf of uh, Train as a territory manager as well as the author of the HVAC Millionaire Mindset. And some of the things that I've seen you do on LinkedIn have been um, things that you don't see in your industry, and I think you have a really great perspective. I'm really excited about today's conversation, so thank you for being here today, Jeff. Um, So you're local. You're from Kokomo. Yep. Have you always been from Kokomo or a transplant? Uh, Transplanted twice, actually. Twice. Where are you from originally? Uh, Born in Saginaw, Michigan. Uh, Lived there till 78, and then moved to Aurora, Ohio, Mm -hmm. which... Most people don't realize Aurora is where SeaWorld of Ohio was. It's no longer I didn't there. know there was a SeaWorld in Ohio. It yeah. seems seasonal. Yeah, yeah. There was a SeaWorld probably till about 10 years ago. And right across the lake was Geauga Lake Amusement Park. And that later became Six Flags. And that was that's literally was my backyard. Oh, really? Yeah. And then in 85, we moved to Indiana. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So how old were you in 85? Uh, I was 15. 15. Yeah. Weird time to move. Yeah. Starting over kind of in the middle of high school. Show, did you go to Kokomo High School? What high school did you no, go to? No, I went to Eastern. Okay. Which is, you know, you've got Kokomo and then you've got all the county schools, Eastern, Northwestern, Western. Yeah. So out of school, what did you yeah. want to be when you grew up? I had no clue. <laughs> uh, I've never, I've literally never been one of those people that has an idea of who you are, who, you know, like an identity. I, I was very much identity-less as through most of my adult years, I would even say. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I came up in a family with six. There were six of us siblings. I was the fourth. Middle child syndrome. Yeah. yeah. For, ten, t- for ten years, I was the last. And then my parents had two more. And through throughout that time, it was more. it, it was such a crazy household that it's kind of like your siblings raise you because you're your parents are just doing everything they can to keep the wheels on. Yeah. And the kids are doing everything we can to take the wheels off. And <laughs> Seems about right. <laughs> and so anyway, but when we moved to Indiana, all my older siblings either stayed behind, had their jobs, were in college, brother above me went to the Marines, and I moved to Indiana with two little sisters. So it was like... Oh, so you went to being the oldest at yeah. the same time as the move. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Um, my wife has a degree in psychology, and she's analyzed that, that that's brought balance to my life <laughs> by being a, a last-born child and then reversing immediately 
for being a, a firstborn child. That's a completely different vibe. So I'm in this leadership class, and um, they split us all up based off of where we fell. I'm a baby, right? Mm-hmm. So I always got my way. There's only two of us, so it doesn't really okay. count as the baby as much. Okay. And then you had your only children, and then everybody went through their, their traumas. No one in my group had to experience both. So I imagine that allowed you to be a little bit more well-rounded. Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's the general consensus. <laughs> From my, my psychologist of a wife. I'm sure that's, you get analyzed more often than not. Uh, I think so. But it's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Free sessions. Those things yes. are expensive otherwise. Exactly. <laughs> well, good deal. So straight out of school, you uh, help your parents kind of raise your sisters, and then what? Okay, then I go to IUK in Kokomo. And that's where I met Amber. And we both were um, at IUK just kind of floundering, really. She was there to have fun. And she knew she was in college to have fun. She really didn't care about school. She later went back. Once we had four children, she went back to school. How many kids you got? You got four kids? Yeah. You you were one of six, and you were like, you know what? That was fun. Yeah, she had (laughs) had two siblings, and her mom always wanted uh, more. So she's like... I want to have more than three kids. Mm-hmm. And I came from six, so I never wanted to have, like, a, an only child because I felt like that would be boring. That would be boring. And lonely. So, uh, so you know, when we came together, it was like, yeah, I want to have, a, you know. Gaggle. A good family. So, uh, anyway, so we, so we got married by, I would say, 2003. I had finally finished my degree. That took. 11 years in college, just because working and yeah. family and all that stuff. And um, soon after, she went back to school. So, and then she got her degree. She's also a territory manager for train. No way. Yeah. How's that work out? Yeah, it's working really good. So, when I first met her, I started working for her dad in his heating and cooling business. It's kind of like, oh, you're dating somebody new? Warm body? Hey, you want to work in heating and cooling? We could use help. Sounds like most HVAC guys. Exactly. The warm body? We'll yeah. take you. Right. So, that's exactly what it was, and that's how I got in, in the industry. She, growing up in the family of you know an entrepreneur, heating and cooling business, she was involved in it long before I was. She was... D- drawing blueprints for new construction jobs when she was 16. That's crazy. Yeah, and then she ended up being the general manager for her mom and dad in the last few years before they retired and sold their business. She was a general manager for a couple other, well, for another heating and cooling company that bought them. And then she went to a couple of the other companies in Indianapolis. And then within the last year, she got her position as a trainer. So how long have you been with train? For about three and a half years. Gotcha. What'd you do before that? Okay, so... Because I've read your LinkedIn profile, and you've done a lot of things. It's been a lot of things. It's been a variety. It's kind of like, it, you know, when the firstborn, lastborn thing, it's kind of like that's what my career has been. That's a good way of putting a mixed, it. A mixed bag. So started working for her dad. That was in 1991, and I worked for him for several years. And during that time, there was a... a other people in Kokomo, other companies, that there were son-in-laws that were taking over, and they were having, like, a bad reputation. Mm. Like, oh, the son-in-law, man, he's taking that place down. And I didn't like that stigma, and I was a lot less secure in myself back then, and, and again, didn't know what I want. Like, is this even what I wanted to do? And I think 
that kind of helped me transition over to another job, which was a factory job in Kokomo, which at that time there was an abundance of. So I went to Chrysler, started working there, and later got an apprenticeship. And I went through a pipe fitter apprenticeship, uh, topped out, as they call it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, basically I was there for about seven years. And then the entrepreneur me started taking over where I'm sitting there kind of imagining, well, if I'm doing this, this is while I'm working. If I'm doing this, you know, maybe I can do, because I was on second shift, so, you know, you wake up and it's daylight and, like, it's time to work. Yeah. But I would, you know, so I kind of just created a home maintenance company, started doing that part-time, did that for a little bit until it's like, I got to choose. So then I just quit Chrysler. Of course, everyone's like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're, you're like, <clears throat> you're... You're you're journeyman pipe fitter working for one of the big three. Why mm -hmm. would you do that? Well, I honestly I don't know. I just it was just a bug. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you get absolutely. That independence bug, and so did that, and then did that for about four years, and then an opportunity came where GM was transitioning in a big way. Uh, GM and Kokomo, the electronics plant, and so I went there, got a job as a pipe fitter. And that's where things started to change, like l literally starting to change my life. So it was a different kind of pipe fitting. It was more technical. Um, and when, when you work at that level there uh, of skilled trades, you're like a fireman. And I've said this, so if, some, if anyone's heard me speak on the millionaire mind, HVAC millionaire mindset, this is like a broken record. But um, when, you're, when you're doing that job, it's like a fireman. And if nothing breaks... They need you to be on standby. And until it does, like, they need to know where you're at and you need to be inside the building. So so with those kind of rules in place, it's like, okay, when you're on, you got to be really on because they're making money when nothing's broke. When something breaks, they're losing hundreds of thousand dollars a minute sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, so everyone else was either doing Password puzzles. Not a buddy that works at Chrysler right now doing no, the exact no, same no, thing. No, and this is at GM. No, I don't want to make it like it's a bad thing because it's just a reality in the skilled trades where you're on standby. I know firefighters, and they take a lot of naps. So yeah. I totally understand exactly what you're talking well, about. <laughs> I'm not they jump into that burning buildings. Yeah. That, was, that definitely has its place and time. And um, But but what do you do at that time yeah. when nothing breaks? And for some people, it was crossword puzzles. I knew pipe fitters that were highly intelligent, knew multiple languages, because they used that time to learn something new, wow. to become better. And so that had an impact on me. I didn't know it then, but that was having an impact on me. But in college, I always felt like I liked doing the like Kelly Blue Book tests. Mm -hmm. not, not Kelly Blue Book, so just the Blue Book tests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... I, I, I don't know. I felt like that's kind of nerdy of me, but I always enjoyed it. I enjoyed conceptual writing and conceptual tests rather than, you know, A, B, C, whatever. Yeah, right or wrong. Yeah, so, um, and over memorization. So I started writing. Like I told Amber, you know, we've got a lot of time on our hands, and I think I'm just going to start writing. So... That's, you asked me before the podcast, so what made you start writing? Did you just decide to do it? Yeah, I did. That's and funny. it's because I had a little bit of time, and I, I, I just can't sit still. 
it's like when I was a pipe fitter at Chrysler, I couldn't sit still. So I, you know, concocted a business mm -hmm. and started doing that. So I started writing and I started writing fiction and I've written several books of fiction, but the first one I was so excited about, like every first time author, it is, you literally think it's the best thing the world has ever seen. What's and the name of that? That is called Killing the Giants. Okay. And it's actually the worst thing the world has ever seen because, <laughs> because it, you know, when, when it's like anything else is when it's your first time, you, you really don't know, yeah. but, but you don't know what you don't know. So I published it. I thought it was wonderful and great. And then reviews started coming in and I was hit with the reality of Amazon and, and reviews being permanent. And I, you know, I, I, I got reviews saying poor writing skills. I got reviews from someone that said, hey, a friend of mine from school who knew Jeff said I should read this, but not good. And littered with Why couldn't adjectives. they just keep those things to themselves? <laughs> I'm glad they did. Yeah. I really am because, yeah, it was hurtful at first. I'm like, oh, gosh, that's part, you know, your pride is hurt. Oh, yeah. But on the other hand, it's... If you've got the right mindset, you look at that and you're like, that's not what I want. So that it was after that first book and after seeing those reviews, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So I paused and I put all my energy, all that free time, all the downtime into learning. And I started reading more and I started reading about the craft of writing from from Stephen King, because I was really into supernatural thrillers. That was my thing to all different classical writers to get a variety and mix and and then reading more fiction than I had ever read because I was determined I'm not going to be that writer that I was on the first book. I want to be something different. Well, by so that was 2009 when I published Killing the Giants. By 2016, I had written 10 books. The, the 10th book... Federal Underground was published by an Amazon imprint, actually through crowdsourcing. They took the first few chapters and put it out there to their reading audience, and they let them vote. And I got just huge scores on that. Really? And they're like, you got it. So it was a publishing deal. They cut you a check. They buy the rights, the whole, whole deal. And during that time of learning the craft of writing, Amber and I had created a website called the Kindle Book Review. That's what I saw on your LinkedIn. Yeah, the Kindle Book Review this year, we don't own it anymore, but it's in its 11th year as a international English-speaking literary awards. And it's like there's um, websites for writers that say, here's the book contest to go to, and here's the ones to avoid, and they're one of the ones to, to go to. Because it's really good. It's it's um, volunteers read the books on the that are submitted, mm -hmm. and they give the ones that yeah. judge it. Yeah, yeah. So so that's a lot. So you were just doing that in pipe fitting at that time, all the way up to twenty sixteen. Yeah, my life was yeah my life was pretty full. I, I worked at GM till and you had four kids, and we had four kids. But most of this was happening like kind of double dipping, so to speak. But I would still go home. And I, I, by the time we had a, a person working for us, 
she was doing most of the day-to-day. And Amber was doing the financials, and I was just more of the creative person. So on the Kindle Book Review, I would do about 10 hours, but most of my other downtime was writing. Yeah. Yeah. So did you always know you were creative growing up, or one day you woke up and said, I want to get really good at this? No. um, I think the writing was on the wall that I was creative. I probably would have been somebody that, (laughs) if they had the name for it, in the early 70s, I definitely would have been ADHD because looking back on my like childhood report cards, there's it's just filled with Bad Jeff notes, is a yeah. good child, however, and yeah. <laughs> he can't sit still. And it's like, uh, no, no, duh. Like, I'm, I'm a boy. Yeah. I can't sit still. I want to run around and play all day. And there's the sign that, you know, high energy, creative, um, like I'm a drummer, so there's uh, there's that right side of my brain that's just always been there. I'm very auditory. I'm mm-hmm. very connected to music. So, but I really didn't put it together. It was really when I started writing that I'm like, this is me. Like, okay, I can do heating and cooling. I enjoyed it, tearing something down, putting something new in. It's functional. That's great. Uh, I enjoyed pipe fitting. I enjoyed the troubleshooting part of aspect of it but when it comes to writing there's so much about that that I learned there's there's a creative part but there is the you have the ability to impact lives like I you and I can sit here and talk all day and we can have a great time and and this is what translates into the HVAC millionaire mindset is all of us have this opportunity in our life you only get one, unless you identify as a cat. You might have nine. Yeah. But I identify as a human being. So I've got one life. I've got one shot to make a difference. And actually, I go to Toastmasters, and last night I spoke. And that I use that exact same line. Sorry, it's fresh in, yeah. fresh in there. So um, I've got one shot. We've all got one shot. And when I realized the power in writing that even if two people read it, I've doubled my impact compared to a one-on-one conversation. If 10 people read it, I've 10x'd my impact. If 100, I've 100x. There's no other way to do that. Of course, video is another way. Yep. So that's why I've incorporated, can I say it? Yeah. Yeah, the um, HVAC animated YouTube channel. And I use that to make videos for my dealers for training so I don't have, so I can scale, so I don't have to keep repeating the same things. I use it to make videos for other trained territory managers so they can just pass on information so we can all scale up and, and just pass on information instead of always one-on-one. And then I use it for communicating uh, mindset training and um, you know the ideas that we're talking about to dealers so that they can be better. Because I know even if only one person listens to it, it's making an impact in someone's life. So. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's crazy because if you look at the way that the world has worked for, you know, thousands of years, the spoken word was the only word that was passed down with stories for a very long time before books became popular or people even learned how to write or communicate through that. And then you see books take off into this next medium. And then you have, the reason I like podcasting is because the exact same reason you said. It takes a one-on-one conversation. 
and it allows as many people that want to engage or be a fly on the wall to that conversation, learn, or just be a part of something, even if it's just two people, even if it's 100 people, even if it's 1,000 people. There's not 11 million people watching this like Joe Rogan. I, I don't know what they would even get out of that, right? But at this point, all it is is the hopes that somebody takes something away and it impacts them positively. So I think that's exactly what you're trying to do, and you're doing a great job at it. So let's talk about uh, the HVAC, HVAC millionaire mindset. Um, when you got back into this world, did you immediately say, I, I'm going to write a book? Or did you write the book and then get back into the world? No, to the <laughs> first question. <laughs> and no to the second question. So here's how, here's how it played out. So the time that I spent in my family's heating and cooling business was just off and, off and on through the years. So I even did some kind of stuff I didn't mention, just little details, doing subcontracting for them, a, a few years doing quality inspections for them. And as I grow, grow, grew older, I'd, you know, I would make observations and just kind of in the back of my mind. But in 2018, when I started working for Train, I'll, immediately I'm working with and being a part of, of 30 businesses small heating and cooling companies small meaning ranging from anywhere from a guy in his truck who might have you know 250,000 in revenue which is really small that's just like buying a job yeah they bought themselves a job to multiple million dollar heating and cooling companies with 50 employees mm -hmm. and everyone in between and just at that point now I've done all this stuff with writing and so I'm just observing and uh, drinking from a fire hydrant in terms of working as a pipe fitter, and now I come into this, is different. So I, the first couple of years, I, I didn't have time for anything. Mm -hmm. It's just learning. It's working hard. It's taking my territory, building it up, supporting my dealers, giving them, uh, giving them somebody who just cares about them and helping their business. And from that, I, I heard, um, oh, what's his name? Um, <laughs> Zig Ziglar. Yeah. I almost said um, something, something else. Zig Ziglar, I heard him say, help other people get what they want and you'll get what you want. And that made a huge impact on me. And I started realizing that that would be a really good guidepost, a good banner for me to live by if I help my dealers get what they want then you know in sales that's how you get what you want if, if they are going to succeed and grow you're going to succeed and grow and then I applied that I started thinking well my life isn't just about my dealers it's not just about my job and trains a great company that they want you to have work like work-life balance and of course I fight that all the time I not intentionally but just habitually tend to work more than I should. Yeah. <laughs> but they try to reel me in, which is good. But I applied it to my family. And I, I came up with a kind of a statement, like I help my family and my customers get what they want and help as many people along the way. And I realized that's a, now that's a really good purpose to have in life. And it, it encompasses everything from my spiritual beliefs to my personality and to what you know the financial goals it really that covers everything 
I want, I want to help my family and my customers get what they want and help as many people along the way. And COVID hit. Of course, many of us were just at home. We, we, we With train, we were like locked down for a couple months, two or three months, everybody yeah. working from home, where my job is in general tra- a lot of travel. I'm seeing a couple of dealers every day, tons of phone calls. So during COVID, now that I had this mantra for my life, I started thinking more about the observations that I've made and the businesses. And I'm like, I started realizing there was a problem in the industry. And the problem was, it's actually in any industry, but the problem was in this industry, heating and cooling owners are trying to build a company that's valuable and that grows and gives them a retirement or a future for the family or something that requires a a mindset of prosperity, of excellence, of growth. But they're dependent on one, two, five, 10, 50 people who don't think the way they do. And I started realizing that's a problem because there's a very specific, a very specific thing that I saw all the time. So heating and cooling companies do well when, when they're selling a system replacement. Like it's a bigger job, it's a more expensive job, but that's what, that's what feeds the, the monster, about 70% of revenue, and the other 30% of revenue is ge- generally service work. When you are driving around town and you see heating and cooling com- vans moving all over, so 30% of the revenue is coming from most of the vans driving around town. The companies that are solid, that are getting the revenue from installs, 70% of that revenue is from a van that's in someone's driveway all day long because they're doing an install. So, so what happens is when you go to a service call, and let's just say it's a small component, that's bad. Typically, this is typical, it's not everybody. Some people have mastered this. Some people don't want to do this. But typically, component breaks, and technician says, here's what's broke, here's how much it is to fix it. Okay, they fix it, they walk away. In the meantime, there could be other problems, like a a coil on the outside, if you've ever seen anyone hose it off. Maybe they never addressed that. Maybe they never checked things like static pressure, like how well is the system breathing, and they, they're focusing on that part. They fix it, and they're afraid to tell the customer how much it costs anyway. Because, I mean, the reality is a, a heating and cooling repair can cost anywhere from a couple hundred to over $1,000. Depends on the component. And so what happens is in that 30% revenue, it's the smallest margin work. And there's a lot of trips, so there's a lot of fuel. There's a lot of downtime. And so in order to combat that, heating and cooling companies have to say, okay, well, when you go on that service call and you tell the customer, well, here's a component that's broke, also offer some other things so you can make the system better than it is. And here's where the problem is. Here's what I'm getting at, is when a company offers their service technicians this plan 
this, you know, so, I mean, sometimes it gets really technical on a nice digital display or paper that's laminated. Here's some options that not only can we fix this part, but I can make your system better. It works really well. These processes, these sales processes work. The average ticket goes up, sometimes skyrockets. And as a benefit, the employee can make more money because in general, they'll give them a spiff. Uh, but, and, and again, some companies don't do that. They feel like that's sleazy. But if someone comes to my house and fixes something and they don't address the whole picture, I, th- th- I feel like I'm shortchanged. So, um, so the idea of, well, here's the actual problem, but here's other things that can help your system be better, more holistically better than when I arrived. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. It's a no-brainer, and it works. But the problem is, and there with the camera, the, the bell curve goes up with sales, and then it comes down all the time. It did it in the company I worked for. It does it in almost every heating and, com- heating and cooling company that I've, I work with, and I hear the same thing from other territory managers. So you just multiply that another four or five territory managers in, in Indiana, they all hear the same thing. So that started, that really like made an impact. And we're like, well, why is that happening? And so during COVID, I'm looking at mindset, my mindset, looking at my mantra, what kind of impact do I want to make on my life? And realizing these heating and cooling company owners that I work with and I'm building relationships with and helping them grow their business are dependent on people that follow a process. They they do what's needed to be done to help the, the business be profitable, but it drops. Why? Why? Oh, oh. And then it hit me. They just don't have the own. It's obviously they don't have an owner mindset because they're employees. It's okay. We got to have employees, but they're the owners dependent on their people for a profitable business, and this is where it applies to any business really. So. Why is it they can't sustain that when it works? And then I started digging into poverty mindset, growth mindset, fixed mindset, started learning all this stuff. Why, why do we have habits that we do? I started learning about neuropathways. There's an old phrase, it's an old Hebrew phrase that says, show me the boy when he's seven and I'll show you the man. And so I started realizing how much of our mindset is ingrained from the time we're young and I'm like, holy cow, these guys, these business owners, guys and girls, are dependent on these people to help them, but they've got people with a poverty mindset. So after hearing and learning a lot of stuff, I came up with my own definition for poverty mindset, and it's a desire for something better obstructed by limiting beliefs. So now you want to have a profitable business, but you have people working for you who have a desire for something better, Meaning they'll tell you uh, one side of their mouth, yeah, I want this, I want that. Or yeah, I can do this for you, I can do that. But then when you've got an employee that's afraid to charge what it takes to run a business because the way they think about money, their poverty mindset is infecting your business to be profitable. That's huge. And so that's what started writing the book. That's what had me digging in to... Now, how do you fix that? So how do you fix that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, that's the golden question. A lot yeah. of the people that listen to this podcast, they're business owners, they're entrepreneurs, 
there are people that want to get into business or at least with the blue collar blueprint, this literally goes to only contractors and people that are in the trades. And, um, this is a problem that we all face. And you're also crunched by even smaller margins right now because you're trying to attract and keep good people. You're just trying to keep technicians, warm bodies, right? So when you put a warm body on the, they're going to ask for the most money they can possibly get and not think about, they're just looking at what's my minimum. They don't really care about what my maximum is, right? So what's, what's the answer? I'm interested. Okay. You've got me hooked. Uh, I'm <laughs> buying the book. Good. I'm buying 100 books. I don't oh. know how many books I need. Good. So, <clears throat> okay. So um, the, the answer, like the, the overall answer is you need to upgrade the mindset of your people. And before I hit play on the book, before I published it, I wanted to bring this to a couple of my dealers and talk to them about it and kind of get feedback when they didn't know I was getting feedback. So I was teaching to some of my dealers a five-star customer experience class, just like a little hour class, get everyone to um, get their technicians in a room. And near the end of that class, we were I got them to understand that when they go to a customer's home, the customer is under stress. So we were talking about um, neural pathways and how the brain works when you're, when you're under stress. It's fight or flight. So if you want your customers to have a five-star experience, you got to understand they're in the middle of a stressful situation until the problem is resolved. Help it be a good process so that when the problem is solved, they know and experienced you helping it to be a better situation than it was because they're in fight or flight no matter what and during that time uh, I told them that that we work the same way that our minds work the same way and I and I bring up the example I said okay for example how many of you would like to have ten thousand dollars everyone raise your hands how many of you would like to have fifty thousand dollars and I'm, I'm, I'm leading the witness here. They don't know it. How many of you want to have 100,000? Hands go up. 500,000? Fewer hands go up. A million. And like, people are like, like Sheepishly, that. yeah. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, let me ask you a question. Because I noticed fewer of your hands come up at a million. It's like, what do you guys think about if I say millionaire or rich kids? And they would they they answered this this first time I did it was in a, a group of about fifteen. The next time I did it, it was in a group of about thirty. And statistically, it's the same result. They were saying things like, "Well, rich kids are either spoiled, they get what they you know everything they want." Well, what about your parents? How did they communicate what what rich and what what that means to you and like uh well rich bastard those kind of those kind of ideas yeah and so i'm like okay so you want more money because of what it can give you but you will never become something you don't like and the they had deer in headlights they're looking at me like what like yeah you you you're telling me you want to have ten fifty a hundred thousand you'd like to have two hundred fifty thousand but what that means to you is you're a jerk 
you're a rich bastard, you're spoiled, you will never become something you despise. And then I said, how many of you would like to learn more about that? And they were all like, yes. Every technician was like, I want to know more. I want to know, they wanted to know, why, why am I, why do I think like that? Like, you really caught me here. And it caught me when I first started realizing what was going on. Because I came up early on, Saginaw, those were the poor days. Just look up Saginaw. <laughs> you'll, you'll know people that live in Saginaw aren't doing that great. Um, and then to middle class. And I heard all that same stuff. I heard all of that. And it wasn't until I realized that I need to change the way I think about certain things in my life or I will always keep doing the same thing. I'll just keep repeating the same cycle because of the neural pathways and the boy that I was made by the time I was seven. All How you think about life, yourself, and the world around you and other people, it's all pretty much established. And so I realized, well, if I don't want to just keep spending every dollar that I earn, then I need to think like people who don't. And because, honestly, for the first 20 years, all the, the growing up, the kids, I mean, it was about, if I was going to get a higher income, it was because I needed to match what I wanted to spend. Mm-hmm. Not looking at life like, what do I want from life? financially, family, and breaking those down in goals and seeing what it's going to take. And so so I started meeting. Now, so now that I asked the question and they were interested and I had written a book, because I, I already had the book at that time in general. Mm-hmm. It was going through some editing processes. I was like, okay, now I'm going to take these examples, enter them into the book, that this is what I'm seeing. It's proving out to be the case. And now I've gone to, I've done two or three mindset trainings with my dealers. And every time I've walked away, there's three or four people afterwards asking questions because they want something more for their life than what they've been raised up to think is possible. And if you think about the trades in general, you've got people that are like, yeah, college wasn't for me. You got some really smart people in the trades and really smart people running a business, but the programmed uh, type of teaching is not how they learn and, or, or you know they just have desire for something better they want to be independent they want to run a business they want to be their own boss and I know a lot of people like me who was a installer technician working for a heating and cooling company that you kind of think this is it for yeah. my life you think I'm I guess this is what I am I'm an installer I'm a technician college never was for me but Every one of those people could be a millionaire. They could have what they want from life. And in general, the only thing stopping them is their mindset, a poverty mindset, desire for something better. They want something more. But why is it every time they get a 2 or $3 raise, they just spend it? And they're really nowhere different. And so in the book, I outline a couple different ways to keep good employees by helping your people grow wealthy with you. And because not there's not a heating and cooling company out there that over the next 10 years is not going to have a problem with employees. Well, I guess it's everybody, really. Yeah, all businesses. <laughs> heating, cooling, plumbing, mechanical, <laughs> all businesses. So, so if you want to keep them 
you can't just treat them like they're the warm bodies anymore. Yep. They're an asset. They're a commodity that is highly valuable. And, okay, so you get somebody that can't keep their average ticket up or their sales up. Okay, let's address their mindset. Let's show them why they're thinking that way, how to correct it, and work on building them up as a person. I've seen technicians get fired because they just can't. They can't do it. But nobody knew the answer. Nobody said, well, you've got a poverty mindset. If you can't, you know, get a growth mindset and improve yourself and become better, well, then I'm going to have to let you go. I mean, (laughs) that never was a conversation. It was just like, you can't hit the numbers. Hasta la vista. Yeah, so I think that that's you know, the lagging indicator, right? They're not going off leading indicators of what's causing the problem. You know, they're not taking the doctor approach. They just see the results. Yeah. I see it a lot, um, and I'm sure you see it a lot too, is people see payroll as an expense. Payroll is the lifeblood of your business because it's the investment in the revenue. Otherwise, there's no reason to have payroll. So... It is a mindset switch to this is an investment in my people. I recently, and I don't know if you listened to the most recent episode of the Blue Collar Blueprint, we had on um, Tom McGrivey, McGrivey, and I apologize, Tom, if you're listening. He's actually the HR manager for Peterman Brothers Heating and Cooling. And their mentality is much, it's almost like a tech startup. Um, And they want to be, take every technician and turn them into a leader, Right. The same kind of ideas, the mindset switch of I work for somebody versus you work for yourself first and then the people around you. We are you know, trying to lead the customer, lead each other, lead our other technicians, our trainees and everything else. And I want to say his number that he told me that they're at like 345 in total employee count and they hope to be at like 650 by the end of the year. And, but they're taking a, a, a different mindset to it versus if you say, I want more employees so we can do more for our customers versus we need to cut headcount. Why is payroll so high, right? That comes from the top, from the top. And Chad Peterman, um, he's got an excellent podcast that he does live training six o'clock in the morning for his guys on like Mondays or Fridays. And they listen. And once you're to a company of that size to still be listening to the CEO or still have them come out and talk to you is completely different. So yeah, I've seen, I've seen several of his, of his videos. Yeah. It's something else. Yeah. It's, but well, that could be said for anything, yeah. not just this world. Yeah. I think if, if, if you are focused only on what you can get, this applies to everybody. Like you will not, you, you won't get very far. Meaning success isn't just about money. So if all you care about is growing your business to a $10 million company or 100 whatever, and that is the means to an end, there will be a lot of fallout, a lot of casualties along the way, and you may get your $10 million, but you may not be happy with what you have. And what, what he's doing, what Chad's doing by building leaders, if he's doing it with the mindset that, even if they don't stay with me, they will become better people in the world. That's very commendable. And what I feel like is if 
heating again i constantly referring to heating and cooling you got to yeah but if a heating and cooling owner or any mechanical contractor or contractor of any kind cannot look at their people and part of the goals of their business even if it's a smaller slice of your goals is to help our people become better then then you're so many things that that can come from that or not come from that is turnover because people want to be appreciated people want to have a sense of value for what they do and a sense of purpose even if they don't know it even if consciously they're not like looking for a sense of purpose and they will find it somewhere or they'll just keep searching for it over you know going from job to job to job to job so if you're an owner and, and you can you can make part of your goal you becoming better as a big slice of the goals and develop systems and processes for your people to become better like you're that number one that's going to impact your culture and culture is going to impact attitude and then attitude is going to impact customer service that's going to have a huge rollover effect but if if all you do is just think about financials and people are just a warm body you're missing a huge part of how a business grows and i had one dealer ask me very cut and dry he and i talk almost every week we have a really good relationship and he's been wanting to take his company to the 5 million mark or maybe 6 maybe 7 like that's just his goal but keeps year after year hitting this this wall and he's like jeff what what do you think the difference is between a $10 million owner and a $3 million owner. And I was part, I answered him right then and there and thought about it later. But my first answer was, I said, well, part of it is mindset, like how they think, you know, positive. Are they um, good at business? What's their personality like? So there's all that kind of stuff, the team building and, Later, I just realized, I mean, yes, it's all of that, but they're working on themselves. They are trying to become a better person. And one thing I learned, you've probably listened to Jim Rohn. I see some of your influencers on on LinkedIn, too. Mm -hmm. One thing that really struck me that Jim Rohn communicates is if you want to change, this kind of summarizes his outlook. If you want something better in your life, you have to change. Don't expect things to get easier. Expect yourself to get better. So part of how you look at stuff, part of it is that you take 100% responsibility. Because a successful owner, somebody that grows, there is something about them. There is. It's not. You could hand somebody a business, and if they, aren't, if they don't have a growth mindset that business will fail. If you hand somebody with a growth mindset and you give them something small, they can grow because they're a person intrinsically already interested in personal development, in in growing in such a way that they become better and better capable to handle the many obstacles that get in the way. And so mindset kind of envelops that, and I discussed that little story in, in the book. He and I, I did another thing with him. I was like, you know, think about like your habits every day, every day. 
And I asked him, when do you wake up? What time do you come into the office? That kind of stuff. I said, well, now imagine this. Imagine your competitor gets up at 5, and you get up at 8. So you get on this line. This, there was a, we were in a shop, and there was a concrete crack in the floor. Like, stand here. This is 8 o'clock. I'm going to stand here at 5 o'clock a.m. Now, when I catch up to you, you start moving. So I kind of did just a very simple jog, and I was long gone before he realized. He, you know, he started moving, and I'm, I'm way past him. And I said, this is just, like you asked me, what's the difference between the owner of a $10 million company $3 million company? Habits is a big part of it. And if I get up early in the morning, and I do things to clear my mind, to improve myself, exercise, reading, podcasts, making podcasts, um, getting a jump on some of the work. If by 8 o'clock when, or, you know, theoretically 8 o'clock when the competition starts their day, I'm way ahead. And do you know Ed Milet? Mm-mm. Okay, Ed Milet. Oh, gosh, yeah. Check Ed out Milet. Ed, Ed Milet. Yeah. He's awesome. He's a YouTube coach, speaker, that kind of thing. Um, he, he said a couple different things. Uh, he said goals are essentially... Um, goals are essentially uh, accomplishing... Um, uh, now, see, I'm going to screw that up. No, it's okay. Uh, he said uh, something to the effect that you get your confidence by hitting your goals, which are promises you keep to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so people lose confidence because they make goals and they, they constantly give up. So that was huge. And when, like going back to the starting early and having good habits, he basically breaks his day into three, six-hour time periods. So get up early, work out. Uh, so he's got 6 to 12 and then he has lunch, family time, whatever, and then 12.30 to 6.30, and then dinner and family time, and then 7 works another 6 hours. It's crazy. It's a little, little much. Yeah. But, but even if you break it down into just two of those 6-hour days, what hap- in an 8-hour day, statistics tell us that like we're generally only working productive 60% of that time, roughly. And I'm sure I'm totally killing that statistic. But it's something really bad. Yeah, I believe that. So he's like, well, then I'm going to make a six-hour day highly productive, and I'm going to put in another six-hour day highly productive, and a third highly productive. And in one day, I've done three times what someone else is doing. So I don't know how I got on that, but those are just some of the influencers that come into my my mind of the difference between... Well, you, you were talking about the momentum of, create, or of healthy uh, habits yeah. and how breaking that into three separate. I was listening to Chad Peterman again. I'm just going to give him another shout out. But he like wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning to start his day. So I would say that, um, like you said, if you start at 5, you get a healthy jog ahead of the guy who wakes up at 8. You wake up at 3, most of us are, unless we have a, you know, a flight in the morning. I couldn't tell you the last time I was up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I have a four-month-old, so I am up at 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But different, like, I don't ever look at the clock and say, you know what? I'll go read a book. I'm going to wake up and go work out. 
So um, I think the habits are everything. And then um, trying to instill that into the people you work with in this industry, I think is interesting. Um, you talk to a lot of old gray hair guys and they're still stuck in the you work for me mentality mm-hmm. versus I work for you. <clears throat> and I think that's the, again, back to the switch. Servant leadership versus I write on the front of your check, not the back. Yeah. So I think this is, a, this is a great discussion. I've got a healthy page of notes um, as we leave the people, because I want to be respectful of your time today, because I know you got a couple spots you want to hit. What would you want to say to our listeners? How can they get a hold of you? How can they learn more about the YouTube channel and the book and all the other things that you're doing? Okay. Well, the, the first thing to do, probably just go to YouTube and just search HVAC Animated. HVAC Animated. From there, I've got links to the book, and I've got a webpage, HVAC Animated which essentially just cycles you back to the YouTube channel or to Amazon where you can get the book. So uh, HVAC Animated is kind of like Google it and you would probably find it. And then the book, HVAC Millionaire Mindset, it's in print, audio, and um, ebook. So however somebody likes to read, I like to listen to it. And read it at the, at same, the same time. time? Yeah. Interesting. It's like double, it's, it hits all my learning, you know, visual and audio. So uh, that works for me. But um, HVAC Animated, the YouTube channel, is where I'm putting stuff out regularly. Plus, you're a great follow on LinkedIn. So if anybody's on oh, LinkedIn thanks. and they want to follow Jeff, um, he is a great follow on LinkedIn. Um, I will say that if you do jump on Amazon to look at the book today, that if you have a free Audible coin, it does offer you to sign up for Audible today and you get his uh, audiobook for free, which is what I did. So um, everybody check out Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I'm really excited to probably purchase a couple books, hand them out to a couple of my clients who are looking to uh, grow and you know keep pushing their business to the next level. So Jeff, Thanks. thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate Bye, guys. Hey guys, thank you again so much for your love and support of the Performance Group Podcast. For more information on the podcast, the Performance Group, or even our guests, feel free to reach out directly via our website, performancegroupindiana.com, or feel free to email me directly, which is sean at performancegroupindiana.com. We'll see you guys next week.